0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C E N T R A L A S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Brian McClintick. For many people in the wine world, Brian needs no introduction. He's one of the co-stars of the Somme documentaries. I think there's four of them now, where we watch him go from being a young, ambitious lover of wine to becoming a master of Somme, and then his further evolution as a global wine expert. Then perhaps... Even more significantly, off-camera, Brian became disillusioned with his membership in the Court of Master Sommeliers and turned in his pin and resigned from the court. The development of his perspective on wine continues and continued through the projects and ideas he began exploring through his online wine club, Viticole and its associated podcast. When Brian recently wrote a post on his Viticole blog titled Reimagining Terroir, which I highly recommend everyone read, I knew I wanted to get Brian on to talk about his new ideas. Brian presents a way to reimagine wine. He discusses how our climate issues are just a symptom of our disconnection from the natural world. He shares a vision where a diversity of wine ingredients leads to biodiversity in agriculture and makes our obsession with clearing forests and landscapes to plant a monoculture of non-native single-variety plants seem absurd. We talk about blind-tasting, terroir, and growing polyculture, agroforestry that includes grapes with fruit trees and bushes and all kinds of plants. If you are ready for a new vision of wine, get ready for a ride of rethinking viticulture to remind us of our dependence on the natural world, reconnect and deepen our bond with nature, and be reminded of who is leading this dance. It's not us. Enjoy! Brian, thanks so much for doing this. Really great to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, buddy. Glad to be here. <laughs> um, so we were just talking about, uh, I was about to tell you uh, this vision for wine. I thought I'd hit record. So the, what, I, what I was about to say was I, I sort of have this vision for wine of, uh, which I think you share and, and um, have expressed in your recent blog post uh, about looking around you and just seeing what is thriving and what's doing, you know, what's doing well without humans already you know what doesn't need to be sprayed which doesn't need to be watered what you know that is thriving in the local ecosystem and then trying to make the most of that and and even benefit it more you know give it add abundance to it by giving it your attention and care and finding a way to bring attention and and resources to it by by converting it to wine and introducing it to other people um and i I was just going to mention like This is how I'm looking at wine too, and we're you know sort of doing things like looking at the orange trees in our neighborhood and and how to make that into a tasty beverage. You know, it's Mm. like is that wine still like is wine just grapes? Are we, you know, what what is what is wine now? And are we? I know you you are talking a lot about that, which which is like using these this diversity of ingredients, which leads to biodiversity and polyculture um, in in agriculture. I'm just wondering if you wanted to talk
1: about that as well oh giant can of worms my friend yeah (laughs) yeah no i mean i i mean i should should qualify this that i'm not unaware that i don't do this i collaborate with people who do and i participate very minimally so um i have very strong opinions and those opinions tend to threaten the establishment and for someone who doesn't (laughs) get dirt under their fingernails personally (laughs) that can very clearly, rub a lot of people the wrong way, um, but it doesn't mean that um, I'm not going to express them regardless if I I feel they're right. But I am It's not even about right, honestly. It's about um, it's about just we all have our own myths about the world and things that we connect with, and mm. you know, it's about it, asking
0: asking good questions too. I mean, asking questions that we need to be thinking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I launched Viticol in 2016 and, you know, I wanted to do, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to, it to be involving organic producers, you know, natural wine. I was just starting to get into. Um, but you know, that was important to me. And you talk to enough people who, you know, at the time, um, are heavily involved in in land and who have phenological records going back, and everybody was talking rather quietly about climate change. I mean, if if you go back just to six years ago to 2016, there wasn't a lot of industry talk about climate change. You know, the the people who were talking about it were probably drowned out, and there weren't a lot of collective voices. Mm. And so yeah. that was um, very eye opening to me. I, I couldn't turn a blind eye to to some of that and so what that led to was you know having conversations with steve matthias and he's like oh yeah you know tilling soil is responsible for 20 percent of like it's responsible for heavily carbon emissions you know and i'm like whoa really i i like it's, everybody does that and so i spoke to this this basically he was a nobel prize winning climate scientist Ratan Law. I gave him just a call out of the blue because his work was specifically on soil and I got connected with them through NASA, who I did a climate change podcast with. Yeah. Um, yeah I listened to that. And uh, you know, Ratan Lal, he was like, yeah, it's basically fifteen to twenty percent of carbon emissions are directly related to plowing. You know, like yeah you can say ten percent of that is plowing itself and the other five to ten percent is wind and erosion from exposed soil. And I'm like that's a huge number you know um and so our industry and obviously viticulture is one percent of that but by the same token um as ag goes you know wine has the largest megaphone by far i i I, not to denigrate a corn farmer but they typically don't have a loud voice in terms of raising awareness and and wine somehow does when it comes to ideas of farming etc um and so it, it dawned on me somewhere in 2017, 2018 that this could be a, a powerful medium for raising awareness. And then from there, I, I just started to realize all the ways I wanted, you know, Vitical to start changing. And then meeting producers like uh, like Eregista and Haiyu, Hayu especially, because I lived in the gorge right around the time the pandemic started. Um, just that was like really the first time I started tasting expressions of wine outside of grape, you know, right. Whether it was just ciders or peri or mixed fruit bottlings. Um, there's so few producers playing in that field. And I immediately liked the expressions. I loved how they tasted. And then it became an issue of, oh, wait a minute. There's bigger ideas here. You know, wine has this huge history of being a pharmacological product that for centuries and millennia including beer was some sort of infusion of fruit and herbs etc and it's only very recently that it's kind of coalesced into this very specific thing that worships single grape like it's a single monolithic that we know single names fruit and have type celebrity thing. cachet that you know we can drop like an LA producer. Right. You know, I'm a, right. right? You know, that stuff. And so like, I started to realize that, um, well if you're a farmer and you want to throw all your money into land and the market is calling for one grape, then that's exactly what you're going to plant and you're going to clear land you're going to clear trees and you're going to eradicate all the life that Naturally exists in that ecosystem, and you're going to plant that one grape and do everything you can to keep that thing afloat. And usually, that grape does not want to be there, and we know it doesn't want to be there (laughs) because it'll die if you don't prop it up. And you know that better than I do, right? Planting Pinot in your backyard (laughs) and then just watching it die on its Um, own—you know—it was around this time that i got connected with larry corn who who had translated one straw revolution which was a uh-huh. book that fukuoka wrote who's a kind of the pioneer of natural farming um also known as do nothing farming and he went through nice. i think similar trials that that you went through in your time with them, with uh playing in your backyard yeah um, but that was a heavy influence on me and, you know, reading his follow-up books, uh, Sowing Seeds in the Desert, where one of his disciples, Fukuoka's disciples, decided to do, to do natural farming with rice in California, you know, and he broke the first yeah. rule that he didn't, he didn't consult the land and ask the land what it actually wants there. You know, rice in Shikoku Island and mandarin trees in Shikoku Island mm-hmm. wanted to be there doesn't mean it wants to be in California where there's barely any water, right? You know, right. You, you look around your landscape and you'll see kumquat trees, you'll see elderflower, you'll see right. wild sage and mugwort, you'll see, um, you'll see uh, pink peppercorn trees, granted they're Peruvian, but they don't need irrigation or anything <laughs> to be propped up. You'll see a lot of different things in the Southern California landscape that yeah. don't require anything to exist there they are essentially delicious weeds right Right. And these are the things we often take out of the system the things that want to be there the things that the land says should be there and because of our cultural attachments and because of the market demand we have to plant what consumers are brainwashed into wanting right and i've been a part of that you know i've been preaching that to since the beginning a, a viticle buying into this single grape idea. And then so moving away from it and convincing uh, my subscribers to come with me is a, is a tricky task, you know, and there's so <laughs> few people in the world who, who yeah. are, are doing this, but it's growing and changing. And so it's really nice to come across you and to hear about your situation with Centralis, you know, because there are so many ideas to unpack with that, yeah, you know, Man, so it, well, it it I, dawned on me like about a year and a half ago that my goal with Vitacol is for the model in its current iteration as an online retail essentially wine club, the goal is for that model to become obsolete. There is some value in being able to test out ideas in different global wine regions to hopefully uh-huh. fan the flame of ideas of viticulture that are far less extractive and ideas of community community ideas in those regions and hopefully that stuff catches on but eventually there will come a time and it's rapidly approaching where where vitical needs to completely change. because
0: i'm assuming you don't mean because everybody hates you and nobody wants to be part of Part of it anymore, That's exactly but because what I'm of no, I I'm saying it because um, <laughs> what is someone... the vision that would uh, replace viticole Like, what what would be the best case scenario? Well, if someone
1: came up to me and said, "I'm I love wine, but I want to do the most environmentally conscious thing," you know, uh, I would I would say that within the space of retail, the the absolute best thing you can do is make your own wine. And that's the, that's the number one thing. And We're not all as privileged to do that, right? But some people are. Right. Um, the second best thing you can do is find a local winery that's farming at a really high standard and making wine, a really high standard, travel there in person, and buy wine directly from the door. Um, yeah. That doesn't always happen either. The third best thing, well, things are changing, and people like you can change that, right? And so the third best thing you can do is go to a local wine retailer and buy a local wine from that region that is farmed well and made responsibly. Fourth best thing you can do is go to a local wine retailer and buy any wine that's farmed or made responsibly. The last thing you should do is buy wine from an online wine retailer because that online retailer serves an online community to the detriment of a tangible community. And the idea Mm -hmm. of shipping wine from all over the world, consolidating it in a warehouse and then shipping it all over the country Mm. is something that should not exist, um, despite the fact that everybody tells me that you can't fight globalization. That's it. I don't believe in it. And um, so for now, you know, Vitical can do a lot of good raising awareness and being a megaphone. But eventually, when enough people are doing special things and there's enough local infrastructure around concepts of farming and wine expression that are less extractive, you know, then, then viticol becomes obsolete and and needs to change. Yeah. Does that make any sense?
0: That makes, yeah, absolutely. That does. Um, Now you brought up a couple things in this, this idea that, you know, this was some, this was a project that you started not too long ago and you were very enthusiastic about and, And it went through a a revolution, multiple revolutions, it sounds like, because of your developing ideas and thoughts and questions around wine, to the point that now, you you know, it it has caused its own dissolution. You're, you know, (laughs) that revolution is now uh, of itself and and the end of itself. And I mean, this is a, a big big question that i always wrestle with and i i hope everybody does i mean i just bring it up because your your journey in so many ways um has this element of process and and you know a, a guy from the los angeles area who i think fell in love with you know wine in the glass and then that lured you out into the vineyard ultimately and now ultimately you are, you know, in a cabin in the woods kind of thing. <laughs> like, I don't know exactly where you are, but I, you know, I, I think you spend a good bit of time in cabins in wood in woods. And, um, I, you know, just, I would love to hear, uh, you know, what that journey has been like, what it's done to you. um, But also, you know, what does that tell us about how we can reach people where they are, um, you know, right now? Like, you know, I want to, I want to think about like, I don't know, there you go. I'm, I'll stop right there and let you respond.
1: Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, and I kind of mentioned carbon emissions before. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a firm believer that the problems facing the world environmentally, they're not the actual problem. You know, it's not carbon mm-hmm. emission or sea level rise or all, all these things. Those are symptoms of the problem. The real problem is our broken re- relationship with the natural world. That's the problem. Yeah. So if you don't want to resolve that and you just want to focus on solution-based ideas through technology, um, it's not going to work in my mind because yeah. great things that are authentic and true, they resonate from the inside out. You can't right. live in an ivory tower and s- solve problems of how you relate to the wilderness. Right. That doesn't work. You know, and yeah, if you look at a, actually, if you look at a, some of the highest people in environmental circles, they're flying on planes, jet setting to galas, you know, that, that you know, and we're all look, yeah. everybody's tied to the hypocrisy, even the most granola motherfucker on earth is tied right. to that hypocrisy, because we're in the matrix. But, yeah, you know, there, ne- there needs to be a recognition that um, your relationship with nature is paramount and your worldview on top of that the the question of why is the relationship broken why is our relationship with the natural world broken is a powerful question to ask and if there are answers to that question that to me is the key to (laughs) in quotes the environmental crisis right because it's really yeah the planet's fine it's really a cultural planet will spit us out and it's really our ass that we're trying to save right and so (laughs) Um, it, it, we need to start by looking within, you know, um, and so what an LA boy moving to the woods has done is just started a a surface scratching of what that relationship can be. And if we, Mm -hmm. if we take it into a, a farming context, if you're spraying Roundup or you're spraying, um, copper and sulfur, and you have irrigation lines, and you're trellising, and you're pruning, and you're hedging, and you're, you're doing all these things that are totally normal and, and conventional within farming. It's not just that these things are extractive. It's the fact that you're reinforcing a behavior that you're dominant over the natural world, and you're reinforcing a behavior pattern that you don't need the wilderness. The wilderness needs you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No, I talk a lot about, I, 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 just did a post where I said, you know, my, my viticulture improved when I stopped seeing myself as director of vineyard operations. and right. started seeing myself right. as the, as the illiterate student in the, yeah. in this classroom of the earth. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's just that positioning. And, and I, you know, I made that's like a, Pithy way to put it, but it really has been this evolution in my thinking of where I just really go to the vines now to listen rather than to you know check off like I have this task I need to perform and you know to see like like I'm realizing how little I I know and and what you know and what I need to do is go and learn and listen and and Mm -hmm. be that observe observer and student of what's happening um, rather than
1: yeah, yeah like, kind of the, I, I the dance I the partner answer. idea right who's leading the dance right really yeah that was know? such
0: a great analogy in your article the the music analogy and, and like, right. right that that is exactly it like the uh the bumbling never danced before i'm gonna lead and i'm gonna and we're dancing yeah. the fox walking even up to it's the awesome greatest music. ballroom
1: dancer of all time i got this <laughs> and he's like this is salsa <laughs> awesome music what are you doing that's how we plant crops period yeah um we don't listen so it, yeah, I mean that idea, um, but and it 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 goes it it goes beyond that. It's it's just like why does why does that happen? Where does that come from? You know where? Do, and you look at like you look at all the things threatening world, whether it's you know colonization, uh, imperialist ideas, whether it's um, you know uh, ugly forms of capitalism, ugly forms of communism, right? Like. All the, mm. all the bad isms that humanity is has foisted upon the world and that we face today and that even distract us from, you know, uh, uh, distract us from mending that relationship with the natural world, right? Because we're so caught up in our own shit. Um, yeah. All that comes from the, the same place. It comes from a worldview that says we're better. We're better than plants yeah. and us. And, of course, if we right. say that, if we put humans on that pedestal, of course, we're going to treat humans the same way, right? Yeah. We're going to yeah, treat ourselves as some are better than others, right? And so you look yeah. at Native American culture that, in, in certain places, survived ice ages, you know, thrived, yeah. um, believing in an animist worldview, a worldview right. that was interdependent and interconnected, that we are part of an organism and that a rock and a tree and the moon and a human being are all on a, a level playing field of importance. Yeah, we're kin. We're not. Then that worldview alone is going to help you integrate with the food chain. Let's say a lot better. You're going to fold into the fabric. You're going to weave yourself into the fabric. You're not going to probably colonize nations with that worldview, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. Right. And you're going to plant. You're going to grow food very differently. You know, uh, Native Americans would companion plant squash, corn, and um, beans together, and you know. Colonial pilgrims who came over thought that was ridiculous that they weren't planting in single row crops, you know. Right. And of course, single row crops just mimics the colonization. You're you're removing all life out of a system for one species and one crop to survive, which is exactly what colonists do. And so the, these constructs that we create, you know, art imitates life, right? And it's the worldview behind that that dictates what we do. And so just working on technologies to solve problems of the day without addressing not only our relationship with the natural world but what what creates that that schism is pretty futile without addressing that issue you know we need to go to like um existential therapy essentially
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah which
1: is um well Look, which I'll I'm be a life participant. Exactly. I mean, I, the hooks are in with me. I don't even understand how to relate to the world. Look, I mean, just it, it you start to realize how insidious it is. I'm talking to you with headphones through a, a laptop, right? I'm, mm-hmm. that, it's not only that, but I'm again, like that farmer who has these extractive things. We exist so much in it in, with our human creation and those inventions. And it just mm-hmm. reinforces our dominance and isolates mm-hmm. us further, right? And so, yeah. how do we even unplug is a, a great is a great question. How do we even get to that place, you know? And the, the, the woods and the cabin has afforded me some of that, which is lovely. And not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the privilege to do that. It's become it used to be that you were poor when you yeah. did that. Now it's a privilege. You to have do to that. be rich, right? Yeah which is yeah, have to have some, sad some level of wealth to be able to have that home in the country. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, yeah. I look my rent is 800 bucks a month. It's not bad by LA terms, right? But Right. Um, <laughs> not at all. Um but you know, like finding work and like you know, not everybody yeah, no, has I've... these the, the luxury that, you know, and so right. that has been created by the business and the people who supported me and you know, that is a privilege for sure. And so it's it's um, you know, it's it's one white male <laughs> theorizing about things from his perspective. But, it, you know, I, I do think that an untangling and a connection to the natural world is a timeless concept that is as innate and true for and should be true for everybody as, as anything. Um, we need to re- relearn how to to interact with things beyond the human creation and whether it's a sidewalk or whether it's a skyscraper or whether it's an iPhone. I mean, if you like, look at it this way, the products that we make, they don't resemble anything that came from the ground. And almost everything comes, everything comes from the wilderness, everything. Hmm. But you look at like uh, an Apple MacBook and you're like, how did that come out of the ground? Like what, what the fuck is that? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't even know how the zeros, the zeros and ones. I don't even know how it works. I couldn't tell you. Someone asked yeah. me to explain to a five-year-old how a computer works. I couldn't. I couldn't explain to an adult, but <laughs> it does. And you know, the minions of Steve Jobs are reliant on things that come out of the ground to produce that. So whether we're dependent on the wilderness for food, clothing, or shelter, or for an Apple MacBook, that reliance on nature is there, but we don't see it. You know, and if you walked into a forest and you came across a wagon wheel just laying there. You'd recognize that as a human creation. I mean, there's not a lot of rootless trees shaped in a perfect circle with spokes. But at least you could look at that human creation and go, okay, that's wood. And it could have been, let's say, carved out of that redwood it's leaning against. And so there's some complementary component to, to the forest and that wagon wheel laying in it. But you come across an iPhone in a forest and you're like, I don't even recognize that and the degree to which we don't recognize the products that we create from our human expression is the degree to which we've come how far we've come away from the wilderness yeah and so the all these symbolic things exist and we're attached to them heavily and they reinforce our isolation so how do we how do we get that back you know and so when i when we when i talk about an online business ultimately being insidious and needing uh to eventually become obsolete. So there it is. You know. Yeah. I'm, there's a <laughs> lot of people right now trying to solve the world's problems on Zoom. Ironic. They're having <laughs> Zoom meetings. <laughs> They're trying to solve natural issues by steeping themselves in an artificial reality. And I'm just as guilty. Mm. It's wild. It's wild. You know Yeah. Yeah.
0: No and uh well I mean I, I, I wanna I'm just reframe this a little bit, like I mean, obviously we're <laughs> get out we're... Of dystopian <laughs> hell for a second. Awesome, thank you. Likewise. Yeah, no, I mean, well, I mean, and I, I could, you know, I could play devil's advocate a little bit and say, "Oh, great, I love that." Yeah, I mean, it, I so let me just take. Well, there's take two points. So, wine, for example, like this, the like being in the wine industry and trying to sell these kind of stranger wines that are unique Mm -hmm. and special and tell a story of this place where I'm from. um, I noticed that what sells well year in, year out is California Cabernet (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, for a certain price point, you know, that tastes good, you know? Um, And look, I have nothing against it. Right. You know, like I taste it. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's totally a tasty beverage. Right. Like, and so I try to, I try to understand like you and I clearly deeply think about these things. Wine has been this lens for us to ask these questions, you know, to, to see these bigger problems and, and to grapple with them. But for most people, you know, this is just a a comfort. It's like you come home and you want to kick your shoes off and turn the brain off. And that's the, that's where, that's what wine serves for them. Is there a space for that? I mean, is that just a matter of time where, and, and can, you know, Time and exposure to newness, and suddenly that newness becomes that comforting thing. Do you think it's that?
1: Well, um, I feel like I, I know too much. I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I, me too. <laughs> I, 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 it's not that I can't relate to, you know, alcohol being a numbing agent or just like taking the edge off or, you know, a social thing that feels good and like it's, ah, uh, you know, it's like the, you know, we're loosening up and having a good time and stuff you could make, you could definitely make a case that alcohol does more harm than good in that situation (laughs) because there's a lot of situations, you know, and certainly a lot of people come to the industry to support their addictions and stuff, you know? Um, But yeah, there's not, I suppose there's nothing innately wrong with that, but as someone who understands where things come from and this is like, this is like a consumer issue. The, the, the more we, we depart from understanding how things were produced and made because conveniences are being created for us and luxuries are being created for us. There's no, there's no one tracking on or, or, or interest in tracking on, well, what is this product I'm drinking? You know, what's in it? Just grapes, you know, and beverages are like the last thing to, you know, we think People starting to think more about food because they have more of a relationship with it because they cook with it. and They need yeah, it to survive. Sort of but beverages, for some reason, get a pass, especially alcoholic, yeah. when it comes to like what's actually in it and right. how land is bent and disfigured by what went into producing that bottle of wine. You know? Yeah. That, I, I just, I can't turn that off anymore because I spent six years walking through vineyards seeing it, you know? Yeah. And then understanding that it's symptomatic of the, the same way we treat forests. And all of a sudden forests don't look real anymore. They aren't. They're Christmas tree lots, the majority of them. Yeah. Which was yeah, yeah talked about as well. Like I can't I can't get that out of my head anymore. You know? Yeah. And I'm not gonna tell someone they're wrong for having a glass of cabernet. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. But me personally, being steeped in the industry and having walked vineyards, I can't ignore that. Yeah. You know, and so when I start to say, well, how do we unwind atrocities committed on land? You know, um, I think some of the cultural attachments around being sold an idea that a glass of Cabernet is the jam. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, there was we 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 can only go so far back in history. There was a time where Cabernet was probably a hand sell and people were drinking fortified wine (laughs) in L.A. Right. Yeah. And that was in vogue. And they're like the idea yeah. of sweet wine. It wasn't until like GI's returned from World War II, who were drinking Bordeaux, that right. a market was created. And it was a cult thing, like natural wine was ten years ago. That happened, and it took a while for people to right. even embrace dry wine. We just don't remember that. It wasn't that long ago. So you know, there are some traditions that are sh- short-lived, some that should last forever, and some that should go right. And so yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, y- like you and I are the type of people who can r- rewrite or, uh, the canvas and, you know, take the Winona Forever tattoo and turn it into Wino Forever. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, like we're, we're okay with um, shedding skin and, you know, having one's opinions be a living, breathing document that can be shaped and molded. I think it's a good way to be. Um I don't even know if that answers the question or not but
0: yeah no i well i think you, yeah you did i think i, th- I mean I, I think what i hear you saying is yeah like if we look at this really the scale of time and the, and so many of the things that i mean that we deal with now like really if you go back 200 years they just didn't even exist you know like like i mean maybe the root causes of them did but yeah the idea of, i mean you go back to the 40s they didn't exist really right I mean, exactly you're right um yeah uh, so and and like i mean again like you said i just heard that uh, about like a dry champagne like a not sweet champagne that was a hand sell you know like 40 years ago you know in california Mm -hmm. and now there's everything um and i think i mean this could be a good transition into cider but before that i think i want to i want to ask you about just well this sense of I mean, so much of what I want to do is to put is to recontextualize wine, because I think this whole industry, I mean, some of the things that we're up against doing what you and I do is an industry that is built on, you know, this hundred point scale that evaluates wine solely on its flavor without its context at all. Like, I mean, it could be grown with child labor and, you know, filled with like a dozen different adulterating chemicals to alter its flavor. As long as you know, that, that, you know, that reviewer thinks it's delicious. Um, It can sell and people, you know, buy into it. You know, this, Mm -hmm. this idea of, of this decontextualized thing. And, and I also, you know, you have a unique position as somebody who's, uh, you know, a master Psalm or former master Psalm and, you know, blind tasting is such a huge part of that. And that again, seems to exercise that muscle, which to me is like everything that you seem to be working towards now would erode that would erode the importance of that and what do you think about that
1: about blind tasting
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: specifically i'd be curious to hear your thoughts for sure <laughs> objection leading the witness <laughs> yeah yeah no i um i look I, I really i love the idea of honing your senses and that was the first thing i noticed is that wow you, you know what what blind tasting yes. did for me was allow me to hone my instincts like i, I don't use my sense of smell I don't think about it, right? Mm, Um, And it's, you know, the human being can decipher 10,000 different smells. So that's the average human, not a superhuman. That's an average human. So like if you want to figure out what that, you know, that Nebbiolo tastes like tar and roses, you're going to get there if you create a vocabulary for it, right? Um, Right. But, uh, you know, over time, like I I just – it just it, it started to, I think, do more harm than good in terms of blinding people from, I don't know, <laughs> more important aspects of, you know, like the, the sommelier game and pulling a rabbit out of a hat. It, it doesn't do anything to further like, um, it doesn't do anything to, to help your understanding of where that wine came from. Just because you're smelling certain things, you know, and it, it leads into this idea of terroir that's been rammed down the the throats of the consumer, that wine should be expressed typically through a single grape from a specific place. And we've Mm -hmm. played a little game called, you know, my village in this wine region can make Chardonnay that tastes different from this village, whether it's Chablis or Merceau or Pellini and the same thing with pinot and gevre Chambretin and um, you know sonoma coast pinot versus russian river versus santa barbara county central coast like this is like these are the conversations that often come out of blind tasting and yeah. we'll of course be moan when we get a wine wrong because it doesn't taste ex- exactly like something that's typical of that place and what is typical of that place well there's nothing typical about planting a european grape varietal, grafting it onto american rootstock <laughs> on the west coast. <laughs> At least yeah. in burgundy the grapes I, were I born love... there and came from seed. Yeah, That's right. there's nothing typical about that. And you don't you can't take an ecosystem and turn it into a, a christmas tree lot of one grape on massive swaths of land over hillsides and remove all the forest from that area and then call that terroir. That's <laughs> not a snapshot. <laughs> that's not the snapshot of place that should be taken. Right. Right? The snapshot of place right. should be taken is what is actually on that hillside naturally. And if you don't bring that to the glass, you aren't going to bring it to land. Yeah. How can you talk about terroir?
0: And 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 then you you didn't even talk about irrigating. Like, I mean, we're we're talking about after planting that christmas tree lot, then you have to pump water over it to keep it alive and to give it the right amount of whatever, you know, like,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, There's very few places, you know, that can establish a vineyard dry farm now, you know, it used to be in the gorge where I live. You could just put vines in the ground and not water them. You can't do that anymore to establish a vineyard. And in many places you have to continue to irrigate to keep the vines alive. Well, you know, that, that's a clear, (laughs) Clear example of dancing the foxtrot when the you know <laughs> the, the salsa music's playing or, or the waltz. You know, it's just yeah. the land is saying no, and we're saying right. yes. Right. Um, and so we're you okay. know like if we're going to be in collaboration with the natural world, like we have to let go of a lot of the the voices that said Cabernet is the shit and you need to be drinking that right. because at one point it wasn't in vogue and then someone said it. And then it became in vogue. Right. And then things change. And yep. this is a time where, as we see, where how, how things are farmed, we're trying to change that in the food system. It's certainly apropos to change that in viticulture. And ag will probably get a big big megaphone because of it. You, know? you can go into the fraught history of biodynamics, but I will say um, <laughs> it, 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 it didn't become a popular movement until wine got a hold of it. It was very culty. Uh, and so for better or worse, right. um, you know, wine has the capacity to blow up farming systems and ideas beyond, um, that's a, it's a great conversation piece that way.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, given this vision that you and I both share of looking at things that do well, that don't need human input other yeah. than you know when we discover that they're doing well we can actually even make them do better because you know we we do have those skills we are part of nature and and, our, and on our best days we actually can you know benefit it by our mm-hmm. actions um that brings me to new york cider and i think we both have a fondness for it and the mm-hmm. this idea that that you know cider in or new york new england cider i should say um is a is something where you know these trees are growing wild without in the forest without mm-hmm. any input and you can go just pick up the apples that fall and make amazing elixir from them yeah um i'm i know i've heard you talk about the the idea of combining grapes with fruit trees in it in an ecosystem um i've looked into this a lot i'm just wondering if you have some stuff some some knowledge you can share about that more on a technical side. You know, does that actually
1: work? Can it work? Of course, it works. Have you seen it working? Yes. And there's awesome. just so like it's just gonna. I know. There's know a I lot was of having I oil. was having I was having dinner with with Nate from Hiu the other day, and him and K- Caitlin brought up a, a really good point that grape alone is actually the most limiting way from a sensory standpoint to express terroir. It's the lowest common denominator. You're limiting yourself into how terroir can express itself, you know, because there's all these other chess pieces. And just think about how you cook. You know, if you have this dope chili oil or you have this, like, little preserved lemon that you had or you had this, you can take maybe just rice to another dimension, right? (laughs) You know, like, and for whatever reason, there's these guardrails that the best wine in the world has to just come from a grape and typically one one species off, you know, and now it's, you know, drilling down clones. It just gets more and more ridiculous. But we just don't have a lot of experience. But at the same time, we ignore the things that we infuse in wine anyway. And what are those things, right? Like, first of all, let's just start with the grape itself. The big argument that a lot of people, not argument, but, you know, artistic debate is whether to use stems or not. And right. some people destem their grapes and other people use whole cluster. Well, you're throwing the grape stems in there and that imparts something. It changes the wine dramatically. Right. But because it's right. part of the cluster, it gets a pass. Well, now you're mm-hmm. putting it in a vessel, most likely oak. Even if it's neutral oak, that's an infusion. That mm-hmm. wood is imparting texture and leaching flavor into that wine. But it's acceptable because it's been a vessel that's been around forever. All of a sudden, you say the word wild sage or apples, and people cry foul. <laughs> forget for a second that the herbs may be growing in the vineyard, and forget for a second that your barrel came from the Allier Forest in France. Right. The herbs have more of a claim to terroir, to be in that infusion, than the barrel. Yep. And then you take, which is the majority of people who, who preach terroir, they're the ones Most often, spraying sulfur in the wine, fining with all sorts of wild, different things. Some, (laughs) Yeah, whether it's bentonite or, you know, casein, milk protein, you know. The industrial additives get far more insidious from there. But those are infusions, and you're completely homogenizing and tweaking that I've been through finding trials and that's a low, that would be considered like a low impact um, additive in the world. And it changes the wine dramatically. Yeah. I've seen even a a light cross flow filtration and watched it come out the other side. I'm like, Whoa, that's a different wine. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, like without doing, you know, without having gone through that, I wouldn't know, but like you're altering the wine heavily before it gets to the bottle and you're gonna cry about an herb or a, an apple getting involved in the in the grape contrast and here's where it gets interesting if you're gonna if you're if it was a hot vintage and you want to bring balance to your wine well a lot of people they water back or they run right. through some mechanical device that spins alcohol out of the wine right, right. right. which is highly highly extractive well what yeah. about a like a tart berry that grows in your area, that lowers alcohol and simultaneously adds acidity. Why wouldn't that be infused into it? Why couldn't you play in that world? And you don't have to like create the, like not every expression of multi fruit has to be this pet nat sparkling fun wine that isn't serious. Some of the stuff can be actually very intentional and thoughtful and amazing. And that's, we're just at the precipice of seeing that and we don't have a reference point. We not only don't have a reference point for how these things will age and what they'll come into. And I I guarantee they'll blossom into things that transcend what we've done with just grape. But we don't have a reference point for when a wine's not ready with a multi-fruit wine. We do with wine that's hit with sulfur, like, oh, it's just tight, right? Or it's just, it's not, it's it's young. But you don't have that reference point with a multi-fruit wine. So you just think, I don't like this. You know what I mean? Right Right. 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 away. No, that's not actually it. It's just not, it's just young and tight but you don't from a flavor standpoint you don't understand you you don't have a reference point for for that so why would you why you know why would you you know so it's 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 one of those things where it's just going to take time to prove that yeah and these are really strong arguments i mean anybody listening yeah and then the more people play in the sandbox who really know how to make wine the more they want to play in that sandbox like then just it'll It'll get to a very, very high level from an art form, but
0: you know that's yeah.
1: that's the cultural stuff. That's the cultural side of it. You yeah, know, there's that, this I mean, whole other side that what does land look like now? You can you can walk up now. You can be an aspiring winemaker if the market demand is in multi fruit or infusions. You can walk up to a land. I'm like, I'm not clearing this forest. I'm not clearing this grove of savannas with wild berry bushes growing around it. I'm going to leave the land just as it is and see what I can seed in, see what the land wants, What you're doing. You're taking your great promise, you're spreading it in your backyard, and seedlings are popping up. And if yeah. they take, those seedlings are going to be very happy. And so when we take this cider conversation back to New York, that genesis of people like Andy Brennan from Aaron Burr mm-hmm. um, and even in Vermont, gargis to fable farm those things are happening specifically yeah. because the climate is so extreme that you know number one how do you get anything to live that wants to live in that extreme environment and then you have all these leftovers from homesteading of these trees mm, that yeah of abandoned homesteading orchards from like if you ever watch like little women you know what i mean like you see <laughs> right. what that looked like in that time and then obviously everybody at some point infilled into a city and population boom happened and grain supplanted cider for you know for for market demand and then big ag started to take over and so these little homesteads were left for dead but animals started eating fruit that was on the ground defecating all over forests and all these apple trees popped up everywhere against all odds and they've been around for 200 years some of them you know and so this this is a beautiful conversations and Getting back to reinforcing one's relationship with the natural world, Andy Brennan going out and foraging for apples reinforces a behavior pattern that he's dependent on nature, on the wilderness. It reinforces, and there's a bond that starts to form that reinforces the idea that nature's leading this dance, and I'm, I'm moving to its tango. Whereas if you're in a cultivation scenario, running irrigation lines and trellis wire and all these things, it's reinforcing the idea that I'm dominant over nature, and we see that in all forms. It doesn't need to be wine; it can be a a lawn, a lawn mowing your lawn. A weed pops up. That's not a weed. A dandelion's not a weed. That's the ground trying to heal itself from what you're doing to it. And why is it ugly? Yeah. Why is like if you let your lawn go feral, and your neighbors would be like, what the you keep get your shit in order man but it's beautiful those are the same people that like walk into a forest and they're like wow but you can't go into a forest and say oh i i see what bob did there with the the ferns and the redwoods growing yeah you can't look at a forest and go that was you know some sort of monoculture idea like it's it's a mishmash of life and it's beautiful so why do we why do we have to make everything versailles and trim the hedges and have these geometric well, if, controls on everything it just reinforces our dominance of the natural world
0: because if we don't control it we
1: might die brian <laughs> i'm i'm slowly dying <laughs> I <know. laughs> no i just like it's just it, it is what it is yeah it's i i mean it's so boxy and annoying but i get it. <laughs> <laughs> no that's great
0: no it's no I, I i heard some cool statistic recently that like if everybody with a lawn uh, just gave 10% of it back to become, you know, just do, did nothing with 10% of it. Like that you could actually start sequestering, you, you know, first of all, you'd reduce all of the inputs by 10% that you're spending on your lawn. And then you, you would actually allow these things to grow and then ecological succession would happen. You'd have bigger and bigger plants eventually taking over. And, you, you know, could eventually turn into like yeah. a little food for forest, depending on where you are, and and you'd start. You know, that alone could make this massive dent yeah. in the carbon in the atmosphere by yeah. people just stopping ten percent of their lawn mowing.
1: One hundred percent. You know, like people like Olivier de like, are um, talking about creating ecological corridors and vineyards. And my friend Mary Reynolds, um, who wrote a book called um, Garden Awakening, and she she has this part of a nonprofit called We Are the Ark, who it's a very simple concept. It's just allowing parts of your mm. your backyard and things to go feral. Um, these are brilliant ideas, and it's just so, so simple yeah. and easy, yeah. right? And very Fukuoka. And like, yeah, I mean, it, I, yeah, strangely, the book *Homo Deus*. You ever read that book? It's The fo- follow-up yes. to sapi- well, *Sapiens*. Yes,
0: parts of it's, it. Yeah, the novel.
1: Our... Entire. It was one of the best chapters on lawn culture. But oddly enough, is in that book, and it talks about the history of <laughs> it and where it came from, you know, and it's very, 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 very tied to the monarchy and things like that. And just, Mm. there were stats that like, I think, and I'm butchering it, but it's like, when it talks about land that's dedicated to a certain thing, it goes corn, soy, lawn, in that order. (laughs) That's funny. Then rice is like a near fourth, probably. Um, I think it would be awesome if we let golf courses go feral, and then we'll see how good golfers are. Yeah, it's that'll be idea. a real test of of skill. Uh, a <laughs> <no>, par 10. <laughs> yeah, right? Par, I don't know. I don't know where the hole is. I, yeah, just bounce it off uh, that elderberry bush and you win, you win.
0: Do you see agroforestry, do you see the future of wine as more a form of agroforestry then? I mean, in certain climates where that's possible. I mean...
1: Do I a, see agroforestry as, as what, as a... Sort of the a
0: direction that wine should be heading more in that direction rather than like, I, got, I have this whole thing, I, right? I, yeah, go, ahead, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, you know, part of my dawning realization was that a vineyard doesn't end at the row of vines. You know, if you have these rows of vines, that that's how you define a vineyard. And I. And then I was like, "Well, actually, it's an ecosystem. I mean, there's soil microbiology. There's the surrounding micro. There's the you know anything that's in the vineyard that isn't vine is part of this ecosystem. But then it's even bigger than that. It's regional, and it's it's even it includes human biology. I mean, our human cultures like are part of that. Our minds have this huge influence on what a, you know the ecosystem that a vineyard that that wine comes from. Um, and and so I, I guess just Leading that down the path, for me at least, I see agroforestry is sort of the direction that my viticulture would head in because it's Mm -hmm. this more, you know, more like a a wine forest. Like we, you know, Mm we've built this wine garden here in South Central, but if I had a bigger palette on which to paint or a bigger canvas on which to paint, it would be more
1: of a wine forest. Yeah, I mean, you look at you look at wine, and it's it belongs in in fungal soils. That's, that's where it natively belongs in a fungal soil is where trees are and it wraps around trees naturally. That's, that's the, the ultimate um, place for a, a wine grape. That's home, you know, and we plant them in meadows that were once forests that are bacterial soils. And so yeah. a lot of people end up like putting bark and wood chips in the vineyard to like reinforce, you know, that fungal capacity within the soil. You know, so it's, it's ideas it's, to answer your question ideas of agroforestry and permaculture and et cetera. These are all like roadmaps leading to the same place. I don't think they should be necessarily codified. That's kind of the beauty of, um, of like Fukuoka and even natural wine is that it's really uncodifiable. It's more of an idea, mm-hmm. it's a rebellion against prog- progress, in quotes. It's a recognition that we're going, we should be going backwards to go forward. What ideas did we lose along the way? Agroforestry is part of that, you know. It's the recognition that there are ideas of ways that things existed, including permaculture, that people understood in, in an era before us that we've wandered right. away from. Yeah, And if we they wandered connected. backwards, it's like retracing our footsteps when you're lost in the woods. And... The ironic thing about that is, if you machete a path forward when you're lost in the woods, it's probably not going to go very well, right? <laughs> the best thing you can do when you're lost is to go backwards, and I've been in that position, you know. And then yeah. you eventually retrace your footsteps far enough back to where you see, aha, okay, there's the trailhead. Got it. Right. I see where I went wrong. But what we do as a culture is we keep bushwhacking, and we. If, the <laughs> ironic thing is, we we commend people for doing that, and we call it trailblazing. Isn't that funny? We call it that. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is ironic that we call it that, and we're just make we're just losing ourselves deeper, you know. And so agroforestry, these ideas are puzzle pieces of looking backward and seeing how we can retrace our steps. That's how I look at those things. Um, so they should be dynamic. They shouldn't be static ideas, and they should be taken within um, within the context of that of that larger idea and concept that hopefully people can meditate on as they start to work on their bond with the wilderness
0: now i'm still stuck in the trees um i'm still stuck with everybody the vines is. in the trees everybody is. <laughs> um do you technically speaking the people that are doing this that are you know growing vines on trees for example i mean the the obvious reasons for why we stop doing that is you have competition for light so you you're going to have you know more uneven ripening things like that harvesting is a real bitch um how are these? How are these solved in in the in the instances that you've seen? Also, like, how do you protect them from birds? Like, if you have a nice row of vines, you can put a bird netting, and then you don't lose your crop. But let's say you've got you know tons of grapes hanging in vines, and all of a sudden a flock of birds fly in.
1: Uh, resilience is created by diversity, and so it uh-huh. shouldn't be just one crop, right? Like, yeah, you have multiple crops, and so birds might get one thing, but they won't get another thing. And disease might get one thing, but it won't get another thing. So as long as you have stack yields in a system of various things, so like grapevines wrapping around pear trees and berry bushes, you know what I mean. Like all of yeah. a sudden, there's uh, there's elements to pull from, and it might be a bad vintage for apples, but a great vintage for something else, right? Right. And yeah. so the more diversity is created in area, not only are you replicating truth, but you're making your system more resilient, and you'll have more. You know, you're diversifying your portfolio, essentially. Um, Again, you're you're more on the inside than I am with this stuff. (laughs) That's that's the beautiful exploration, right? I talk to a lot of people, I see a lot of things, but I I haven't done it myself. I want to. I haven't been able to get into a land situation. But uneven ripening in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, no. um, it, it's no. interesting with field blends, you know, of grapes that are right. interplanted and vines that are interplanted. The entire, you know, a certain grape might be underripe, but you harvest collectively. But the actual wine itself just gets there because some things are overripe, some things are just right, and some things are underripe. And that actually creates complexity and it just works. Yeah. So, off and balance. Yeah. Yeah. And so, worrying about the yield of one crop and focusing on that, it, it to me, is a, a limited outlook. Right. It shouldn't be one well, crop in a system.
0: But what if you have to business plan? What if you have to survive off of that? What if that's your income?
1: Well, that's why we're trying to change the market demand. Yeah, and that's yeah. that. You know, that just is a rally cry for why expressions beyond grape alone. You know, we need to create a market for that. It doesn't exist, but it'll change. It's changing. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to a Barolo producer today. Now, in Barolo, they he. He said that legally, if I, if I. You know, infuse oranges or cherries or whatever into (laughs) Nebbiolo. It's going to be an aromatized wine Uh that can't even call it wine. I don't know if I can call it vino de Tavo, even. It might be getting aromatized (laughs) wine and I might have to bottle that in a distillery. I can't even bottle it in my winery. So there's like regulatory issues beyond (laughs) for Europe. Yeah, I mean, it just shows you how far far of an uphill battle just being able to, to play is in some of these places, right? But then yeah. he, he texted me today and he's like, My uncle Beppe. so this is a cola winery, and you know, Bepe Cola is like a, a pioneer for Barolo and Barbaresco. He used to make wine that way with cherries and oranges. That that's never really been talked about. But you know, Pietro talked to his mm-hmm. uncle um, Tino, who is mm-hmm. Pepe's brother, and he's like, Oh yeah, he used to do that all the time, make infuse that into Nebbiolo. And I'm like, that was a, re- and that dude died in, in 2019 at 88. So like, you know, there is a history of playing in this sandbox that yeah. is not that far ago, but we forgot, it's far enough that we've forgotten that world, but yeah. it's unwinding I mean, it seems, and it needs to unwind.
0: It, yeah. It seems just obvious that before a global culture. You just made wine with whatever was available, you know, yeah. right? You didn't, and there yeah. was no judgment about that because that's everybody everywhere you went was doing that. You know, like you were totally. fermenting anything that had sugar in it, yeah, and infusing it with whatever you thought would go well that
1: yeah. was also nearby at hand. I mean, you look yeah. at like like Minoans and Mycenaeans, beer was was honey, grapes, and ergotized barley. Psychedelic. That was that's a dope beer. I want to drink that beer. That sounds and funny. then like <laughs> wine in Vesuvius, like. You know, like seventy-nine, eighty, or whenever that was. You know, they're they're doing archaeochemistry of amphora and dental people's teeth and stuff, and they they know what they were drinking wine-wise. Like wine was everything under the kitchen sink. It was grapes. Right. It was any fruit. It was spices, coriander, opium, right. cannabis, wolfbane, right. like nightshade, like po- potentially poisonous stuff. Like if you don't know what you're doing, you're gonna kill somebody. Like there's some right. gnarly <laughs> things in there, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but but. Yeah, there were no guardrails on, on right. wine and beer yeah. back then and it was not only pharmacological and prescribed for wellness. You know, and, and we, we still see the vestiges of this with like chartreuse and like vermouth and Amaro. Right. This happens. But yeah. for whatever reason, if you do it with a still wine it's some, you know, sacrilege. Right. It's not or wine something. Anymore. You know, yeah. like yeah. And so we just need to get over that it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. we, well, who, we've gone who, too uh, far let's read let's redraw the lines again and create a little bit more freedom with what we can do you know because yeah. at the expense of what we're doing to the earth it's not worth it who
0: who do you want to sort of promote for for the the work that they're doing oh man if anyone there's
1: so many people you know hi you do big, big yeah. influence fable farm in vermont laguerre andy brennan um, it's Stereo Boys in Sweden. Um, Mingako is, pro- is producer in, in Tata in Chile. Like, it's just there's people all over the world playing, and even traditional producers, you know, um, who are saying, okay, I'll try it, you know, like yeah. Cola and Arno Lambert. And like, they're, they're okay, I wanna, I wanna see what's here, you know. I mean, yeah. I talked to Giacchino in the Savoie, and he's, <laughs> Uh, I'm like, well, and he's like, we could infuse herbs, mountain herbs in, in Mondeus, and I think it would be delicious, but those herbs are picked by the monks for chartreuse, so uh, there might be protective. So it's like like, these, like, <laughs> how do we find the workarounds <laughs> and stuff? And it's, they're getting excited, and that's really yeah, that's fun that's to great. see, you know, and hopefully it catches on. Yeah. Eventually, you know, Vitical needs to become a local business in the same way, but you've created architecture for that, right? Yeah. Um, but for now, it is what it is. And once enough people are playing in that sandbox, then the business shifts. And that's an exciting thing. And those wheels are already in motion. I'm outgrowing personally what the business is capable of doing right now. But if Viticol ended up becoming a land project that served a community, that would be awesome. You know, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a world where people are bringing their bottle or, or filling their growler straight up out of the thing. No shipping. Yeah you know there's maybe a a community event with live music where people are gathering you know yeah connecting with the land like you know something beyond themselves i mean there's just like so many beautiful ideas that um that harken back to to a time when we weren't so isolated you know the pandemic is defining and redefining what that is
0: yeah exactly that's that's it i mean there's so much that we're not aware of, right, right around us in our immediate surroundings, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: well, I'm really excited for you. I just, I feel like I see so many really fascinating, beautiful things that can can spin off just what you have embarked on in your backyard. So, looking forward to. Uh, to yeah, me too. I, I guess minute. I
0: am too. <laughs> I mean, thanks for having this conversation. I want to wrap this up so I can, you know, you know, let you go. But uh, any anything you want to say about you know where people
1: should check you out or learn more or oh, get involved um or anything. yeah i mean viticolewine.com, v-i-t-i-c-o-l-e wine.com we do a few podcasts every now and then when i can get my ass somewhere and then um and actually <laughs> yeah there's some juicy edit. ones on there some <laughs> ones. but um and we also, I also, uh, as you know, Adam mentioned, write, write a blog from time, which is mostly me ranting, like I did today. So if you don't like any of that, you're definitely not going to like the the articles. But um, yeah, and then you can, of course, if you want to participate in the club and see what all these weird, wacky wines are about, um, there's a sign up page there. But, and then you could follow us on social media, which I'm slowly weaning myself off of. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. i enjoy i enjoy reading your stuff and i've really enjoyed talking to you Brian. thanks
1: oh thank you so much thanks for having me yeah Uh, it's a pleasure
0: thanks so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed this as much as i did and if you did please do leave a review for the organic wine podcast it helps a lot and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can which your review will help do thanks so much